Hi, this is Corey Weinberg. I'm a reporter at The Information. We wanted to bring you the next in our series of talks and panels from our annual subscriber summit. Uh, You're going to be hearing the audio from my talk on uh, the future of the IPO, in which I I spoke with two bankers, William Connolly of Goldman Sachs and Lauren Cummings of Morgan Stanley, as well as Scott Stanford uh, as co-founder and partner at Acme Capital. So we got a couple bankers, a venture capitalist, all talking about direct listings, IPO performance this year, uh, and everything under the sun related to the future of the IPOs. We hope you enjoy it. I first wanted to do something we like to do in journalism, which is narrative build. Let's set the stakes a little bit on why this conversation matters, this kind of classic the future of blank conversation at at these types of conferences. Why do IPOs matter? Sort of why should we care about this moment in time for IPOs, um, for Silicon Valley, for society? Anybody want to take a stab at at that broad question? Yeah, look, I I mean, I think... um, the IPO matters to the company that's undertaking it and its investors, but I think more broadly, you know, companies going into the public market, having success in the public market, you know, matters because it's reinforcing of the you know, value creation that happens from starting new companies, building innovative companies, uh, disrupting old ways of, of doing things, and it perpetuates a cycle and then it filters through. So you, know, you have a company, it's been built, it's been a private company for 10 years, it goes public, it has success. Um, shareholders are rewarded. That leads them to put more capital back into new companies. And at the same time, for the you know, companies that exist in the private market at that time, companies that are having success in the public markets have a you know, set of valuation benchmark or reference point that then you know, is also beneficial to, to companies that aren't yet public. And so I view it as, it, you think about capital formation and company formation, it's kind of the, you know, the graduation step, if you will, for a number of companies and one that the more companies that are successful in the public markets, the more you know, capital availability there is for people to build new companies that'll be the next big companies. Yeah, I was gonna add, essentially is growing up. Um, unless you're a very, very profitable business, um, raising private capital to fund that um, is, that's not the business model that um, any company really um, exists under. And so I think it's growing up, and a lot of that is the financial discipline. That's been a surprise to some companies, yep. I feel like. Yeah, no, it's the financial discipline. I mean, it's easy to spend a lot of money that's being handed to you by three investors in, um, without having the eye of the public market to be measured by. And so I think there's a lot of businesses that benefit by having to kind of have more financial discipline, and it benefits the, the community as well, and investors, but also employees and consumers. Scott, why, you know, as someone who's sort of sat on both the public and private equity sort of side, um, what's been in the water lately in Silicon Valley where it, and New York um, where it doesn't seem like everyone's gotten the message that financial discipline is going to be uh, that important? You're referring to the disparity in valuations? Or yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it's certainly, I think you could have seen this coming a long ways, but we've certainly had a year this year with several IPOs or abandoned IPOs from WeWork to Uber to Lyft, where you've had companies where private investors have valued mm-hmm. them more highly than the public markets have. And the difference seems to be, you know, whether, you know, sort of how those types of investors view prof- 
path to profitability and, and financial discipline? That's a huge question. It's a really good one, but it's a big question. I'm just amused by the fact I'm wearing the same sweater in the picture <laughs> as I am now. I've gotten a haircut. Um, my hair is a little shorter, but other than that. It's a master class of skirting that question. What happened to your tie? I lost that. <laughs> Left that in New York, yeah. You pitching a startup later? Or? <laughs> the easy-going easy banker. Um. Try to loosen it up. So, so, we know that the, so the reason why they're not financially disciplined is because VCs wear sweaters and bankers right. wear ties. Okay. Or, or don't wear ties. Yeah. It's the, the only difference, frankly. Um, so, okay. Uh, I guess just a quick step back to the other question. The IPO is just like the future of the IPO, the future of growing up. Uh, Lauren nailed it. It's just part of maturation. And, and it's an element of discipline that comes with being a public company. But at the most basic level, you want to be a public company. So there's liquidity in the stock. So your, your employees can sell. You can sell. Your investors can sell. And so you can raise money more easily. You don't have to go through a clunky private process. You just simply have a price, and you go out and you raise more money. So it's, it's a very logical progression. The IPO itself is fascinating because it, it really is a, a, an art that hadn't really changed for many, many years. And it, it was a negotiated process between kind of a very opaque market where you had, and then talking more historically, you had these big mutual funds and, and buyers of public stocks and these little private companies that operated in a vacuum. And you needed professionals to come in and say, hey, you guys should meet. And you guys should work together. And there's an opportunity for you to work together. And you need those big anchor long-term investors to give you a stable stock price in the future. So when the, you know, the, the uh, kids' investment group is coming in and out of your stock, it doesn't really jerk things around because the fidelities of the world have a long-term view. And so it all made a lot of sense. Well, now where you have the internet and you've got complete transparency and you've got conferences every other week where the fidelities and capitals of the world aren't just meeting these founders, they're chatting with them because they've been invested in these companies for years. It's a completely different ballgame. So the IPO has not caught up. And it's now all of a sudden catching up. And you're hearing VCs being like, oh, it had direct listings. That's, you know, these fat cat bankers are taking too much. I, I just think the whole thing's overblown. Like, we just have to find a way to move in the maturation cycle from being a private company to a public company. Direct listings make a ton of sense. IPOs, regular way IPOs make a ton of sense. And we'll get to that later as to when one method makes more sense than the other. Surprise, surprise, it's situation specific. Company A should do a regular way IPO. Company B should do a direct listing. Company C should do a hybrid of the two. It's, it's not like there's this, oh, you gotta pick one or the other. Oh my gosh, who's gonna win? VCs versus bankers. And, and it's being played out that way a little bit in the press and frankly by some of my colleagues and whatever. I'm, I'm a little bit more sanguine on the topic. To your point though about the disconnect, it's a huge issue, huge issue. Luckily at Acme, we invest in the Series A. So we come in really early, and the headroom we have on ultimate exit valuations is quite high. So we're kind of watching it. And of course, we want our companies to achieve the best valuation possible. But from our perspective, we're protected. However, um, there is definitely a disconnect. Um, and that disconnect can be driven by all sorts of things. It can be driven by reckless investing, where you have tourist investors coming in at the late stage that, frankly, aren't doing much work. They don't understand exit valuations, and they just throw money because it's a markup on the last round. Very dangerous. You also have situations where you have an overall market shift, right? You have times in the market where people love growth, and you have times in the market where people want profitability. And that 
systemic shift is happening independent of however the companies are operating. And if you get caught in that shift and you were raising money in a bull market where everyone wanted to buy three-year-out projections, and then all of a sudden you find yourself trying to price in a market where people are saying, what'd you do in the last year? You're in trouble. Yeah. And there's a huge disconnect. Tour I mean, like, tourist investors, though, like, who do you, you, you know, we've seen some of the biggest flops, you know, uh, be from companies like, like WeWork had late in its cap table, had SoftBank, you know, JP Morgan, you know, sophisticated yeah. investors. You know, Uber also had a, a litany of sort of sophisticated investors that were driving up that price. Like, is it really fair to say they're like, oh, there's just unsophisticated people who don't Those know what Those guys are incredibly are. sophisticated. Uh, Will, do you want to talk about WeWork? <laughs> I'll pass, but look, but I, I think you guys might have better opinions. I don't have any investment. Topic, I'm happy to chat. I about think it. Um, no. Look, I think the one thing I would say that's really different. So you know, Scott uh, Scott had one take. The other take I would say is when you're raising capital privately, and we've seen this with companies we've helped raise capital privately. Generally speaking, there are exceptions for you know really late stage stuff, but generally speaking, you're raising a amount of capital from one, three, five firms at a time. And so the market for that private capital raise is that set of people that you choose to take, you know, take an investment from. When you go public and when a company enters the public markets, whether it be via direct listing, an IPO, a SPAC, or something else, um, now all of a sudden the market is not a reflection of a handful of people. The market is a reflection of hundreds of people, that, you know, thousands of people from you know, big institutions that Scott talked about to people that you know, trade momentum and are, you know, and are you know, shorting against recent consumer IPOs because the first four have gone bad and so then the next couple, you know, and they're playing that and expressing a view. Uh, and then you, and at the same or time. Or algorithms. Or algorithms and machines and, you no know. Opinion. Yeah, and for the first trade. time, you know, for the first time in August, there's more assets under index funds than there are under actively managed funds in the public markets in the, in the U.S. And so if you have one corporate structure, you might have those index funds buying. And if you have another corporate structure, you might not have those index funds buying. And so the reality is the public market expression of value, I think, reflects the perspectives and the actions of a much broader set of people than, uh, than the private market. And so it's going to move around a lot more uh, depending on you know, the winds of change and where sentiment is. And I personally would just add that I don't understand why private companies raise to maximize value because it usually doesn't end well. And that's what we think we've seen with a lot of these, um, you know, WeWorks, Ubers, Lyfts, you know, others that that mark is out there and it's in the headlines and having to live up to that in the public markets has proven to be tough. And what? so also taking the amount of capital that's given to you just because it's there, because then you're, you have to kind of try to rush to spend that. And that can be undisciplined to try to spend the amount of capital. So I think raising at a, a rational, appropriate valuation that you think is fair, and then only taking the amount of capital that you need to actually, that you can actually spend and create value with. We're probably going to see more of this, right? Like, it, I'm, it doesn't seem like there's a sort of a bubble completely burst right now, but there's certainly a gut check around a lot of private valuations. Like, uh, from the banking side, like, as you're talking to these companies and you're having to pitch them on what you think their valuation is going to be in the public markets, like, do you ever get an explanation as to like why they raised privately at such a high valuation, or like what was driving this kind of fervor? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're pricing to public market investors. They don't they, they don't care what your private valuation was. They're going to come up with a valuation view independent of what that private market valuation was. And so, um, we just want to be conscious that we want to introduce you to the public markets in the right way. And so, we just have to step back and do an independent view from what any private market investor would have paid. Yeah, Corey, I mean, I think 
you know, the incentives aren't always perfect, right? And so as you think about a company that's building and growing, um, what, you know, for a private company, um, sometimes the valuation can be a signal of how successful they've been, right? And how people talk and how many employees want to work there. And so, you know, that may not necessarily solve for the smoothest arc over the next five or 10 years, but at that point in time, it may help them, you know, advance their business. And then, you know, I think companies have to weigh that against if you stretch, you know, if your valuation is, is you know up and then you're you know dealing with oh now my valuation's lower what are the implications of that so but you can see in the moment why somebody would want to have the biggest valuation because it's a signal of you know it's a signal of uh, success in the in the private in the private markets um, I think that will always you know be there Our, the clients that we've worked with have been most successful have kind of tried to take a multi-stage view and say you know as Lauren said what's the, you know what's a fair valuation um, and try to create a you know a, you try to create a more linear progression for themselves. Now, the thing that's important for everybody to know is it doesn't, you know, it matters a lot for companies and for the optics and the employees and the investors in those companies. The public markets are kind of indifferent. Um, they're not emotional about it. And so, you know, when, you know, when any of these companies came out and are now trading at a lower valuation than where they were valued privately, the, the mutual fund manager, if they didn't already own it as a private company, like they're not upset or they're not saying, oh, I don't want to invest in that company because valuation is now lower. They just say, here's what I think it's worth. Here's where I'm willing to buy it. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's really about perception. It's really about perception and optics and, and how do you create, you know, the desired path that you want. And in some instances, having a higher valuation may be helpful to a company um, as they're building their company. And in other cases, you know, we haven't dealt with this a lot since, this is the first time we've really dealt with it since 2015 where we had a market correction. So we had people that were going public at valuations lower than they did before. And the issue is really not with the public market. The issue is really with you know, how do you navigate that with your employees and your company constituents. One, one, one little tidbit on that. I think what you said was dead on. Um, from my perspective, from a hiring perspective, as we're building out teams, you, you see kind of uh, future employees that are going to be joining these startups falling into different buckets. You've got really three buckets. You've got the, the total risk takers, right, that are like, shoot, I want to just go shoot the moon. Then you have the people that are actually uh, very qualified, uh, a deeper resume, the, the true kind of almost C-suite build out. And then you have the rest, the pluggers, right? And, and what's interesting is pre-billion dollar valuation, it's really hard to get the C-suite built out. And I don't mean just C-suite, but these people that really have the depth of the resume. You hit a billion, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is great. You hit 10 billion, and people start going, well, wait a minute. Uh, I, I read, I saw these headlines about the disconnect. And so, so there is a push to try to get to that billion mark and be able to join the unicorn club or whatever you want to call it from an HR recruiting perspective. Um, and then the last thing I'd say, which is not a primary factor of going public, but you're talking about why companies go public, there is that, that PR, especially in consumer side, that kind of PR marketing side that comes with it of, oh, we are a public company. And then frankly, on the borrowing side, when you go knock on the door of a, a bank to borrow money and you're a public company, you're going to get better terms right. than, oh, let me talk to that one big backer of yours. All right. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. I, I, I realize that the future of the IPO also should touch on a little bit around um, the private investor that kind of pitched itself as the IPO replacement in Silicon Valley for a little while, which was SoftBank. Um, and, you know, the, I literally, like, they, I remember hearing from, uh, you know, SoftBank people when I would ask, like, oh, when will this company or that company go public? And the answer is, well, they probably have a little bit more runway now that they have our backing and we can keep plowing money into them. 
It seems like, so that was like a year ago or so. It seems like that temperature has changed a little bit. Um, we'll see if they raise Vision Fund 2. Um, but how do you see kind of the current state of play with the SoftBank effect in the Valley, um, uh, you know, given that they have been sort of struggling recently, but there's been all these sort of big promises over the years that they could be this like IPO replacement to some degree. Um, I'll just so from my perspective, um, speaking candidly, uh, spotlights on them. We're all interested to see how they behave. So they came out with that pitch of we're the long-term capital we're here to support. They are in multiple situations where with a flick of a switch, they can, in essence, take control of companies. Right. That's a pretty different posture than, hey, we're passive long-term capital to support you. Um, we'll see what they do. The SoftBank's come in five of the companies that I've been fortunate enough to invest in in the early stages. And we've seen kind of different, different outcomes in different situations. But I'd say we're seeing it play out right in front of us right now. And you guys are doing a great job keeping an eye on it and reporting on it. Um, it'll be fascinating to see how they behave over the next six months. Fascinating. What, do you, what will be the thing that you're watching most closely? Um, well, there's some high-profile ones like WeWork where you know, they're in a position of power. There are some other companies, if you kind of pick through it, like, frankly, Uber. They have a very big position in Uber. Um, they have a big position in Brandless, which you're part of. They were investors in Brandless. Like, what, how, what are they going to do? Like, in Uber, you know, what, are they going to sell? Right. It would be really weird, given that they were buying at a higher price. Will they be public about not selling? You know, there's some rumors of, like, oh, would they come out and say they're not selling? It would be interesting to see how they behave. WeWork, obviously... You guys know more than we do, um, given well, your great reporting. Like, interesting to see what they're going to do. Well, usually I feel like when you get a, it's not a good sign when a big late stage investor, uh, when they put money in you, that raises more questions about the company than it is validation of a company. So, like, that seems to be to be kind of new. Like, it, when SoftBank invests in a company, now there's all these questions around, wait, like, what's going on? Like, is this actually a good company or not? Yeah, but like, let's not forget Google and Facebook. What about them? What, where did they trade after their IPOs? Where did they trade in their later stages? I mean, they, they were, there was so much grave stomping on both of those. And now look where they are in terms of their market cap. So right. to, 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 to call this off the front bumper is really irresponsible and silly. Like, we, we won't know how this plays out for several years. Right. Of course, we can all speculate and have fun conversations about it. But these things are multi-year plays. Masa thinks decades Literally, thinks decades. You know, centuries. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bezos thinks in hundred-year increments. Like you know, he's he's building his whole space plan. Like, and and he knows he'll be dead by the time it comes. But that's the way he's operating. So for us to be like, what are they going to do Tuesday? And where's the stock trading Wednesday? It's like really like th that's not the scale of these companies. That's right. not the scale of Google and Facebook and others. Fair enough. I, I think um, I, just in terms of that's a high bar with Google and with, you know, sort of two world-dominating, you know, monopoly ad platforms as your, you know. But that's all we, we want. Like, we, we want these massive outliers, and that's, that's what hopefully Uber and some other ones, yeah. you know. I, I mean, I think it is a moment in time. And so I think, you know, I think Scott's point is, you know, they've been investing for a long time. They've had a lot of successes across a number of different areas, and they made this, they made this large push with the Vision Fund, you know, just a couple of years ago. And so now they are in the position where they've been in investments for a while. They've had some really successful ones. They have some ones <clears throat> that are you know, being covered you know, quite closely by you guys. And so everybody will learn a lot from the next, you know, the next handful of years. And I think that, you know, that more fulsome 
narrative will play out in front of everybody, and you know, then I think you'll have your answer. But it's it's super early. It's like first inning, second inning totally. of the you know of the SoftBank and Silicon Valley. But we're in the late innings of this bull market, right? Like that's kind of the the thing. People have been saying that for a long time. Well, uh, where do you think that? I mean, like just to maybe pivot to that quickly, like what is sort of the get, give us quickly kind of like the what's the what are you telling companies that are coming to you guys and saying, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm a startup, I've raised as much money, I'm growing at you know, 60% a year, that'll probably come down to like 40% a year in the next couple of years. Like, should I think, like, when, like, what's the threshold for me IPOing in the next couple of years? Yeah, well, look, I think we're in a 10 plus year market expansion, right? And so history would tell you um, we are approaching, you know, approaching a point in time where we won't be in a market expansion. Um, you know, that being said, every, you know, most people remember the last market correction, and unfortunately, it was a really big one. And that's pretty abnormal, too. Usually, you know, the world doesn't freeze over. Uh, um, the world doesn't freeze over like it did in, you know, late 2007, 2008, 2009. And really, you know, the market activity didn't come back till 2010. So that's, that's unusual, too. And so I think what we're telling companies is, you know, if you're interested in entering the public markets now because it's the right thing for your business, there's a good window to do it. Right now, despite some of the headlines, you what's know, right now to you? Over the course of the next the next six to nine months, um, then we have an election. Re-election. Things, <laughs> things generally get more choppy and a little bit less predictable around an election. And then, you know, I think most people, most market prognosticators say next year is more likely than not to be recession-free. But then the year after, it's harder to call. And so, you know, what we're finding is we were talking about this before we got off the stage. We still have companies that think it's right for their business to enter the public markets next year, and they're getting ready to do it. What we don't see is a bunch of companies saying, uh oh, I, I, thought 20, I thought 2021 was my year, and now maybe that looks like a more tricky year, so I should pull it forward. We don't see that right now. And I think it's because companies have more confidence in their capital availability in the private markets. And companies say, I'll go public when I'm ready. And if I have to wait out a little bit of a market correction, I'll wait it out. Is that naive, Lauren? I think timing the market's impossible. So um, you could get yourself ready in the peak multiples in June. You could have gotten yourself started then, and the market's going to change by the time you go public because it's a six-month, at least a six-month um, period. So I think you just have to be comfortable. Do I want to be a public company? What are the reasons that you want to be a public company? And get ready and be ready for that window when you're, when you're aiming for. If it's not there, you push it a quarter or two because windows don't stay shut very long, um, except for 2008 and 2009. I mean, generally, it's a quarter or two, and then windows reopen. So my gut is always to get ready, even if it's a bad market, get ready, because by the time six months come by, could be back on the upswing, and then you'll be the first one or kind of early stages to get out. So I think you just have to get yourself prepared knowing what's right for your business and have to ignore the market. Here's the one, one comment or question I'd throw into you guys on this. Um, if you kind of level up out of the six, 12-month thing and go to like a year or two, I, I feel like there's been a massive systemic change in the public-private dynamics, and that's the alpha shift that's occurred by moving a lot of the alpha to the private markets. And we're, we're seeing it play out in front of us with you know the, all the unicorns. There's 398 unicorns now or something like that, some ridiculous number. I mean, just all the investor gains are kind of going. Yeah, up. and, and the, those, those gains, the alpha that was once absorbed by the public market, by retail investors, by the fidelities, capitals of the group that would sit and wait for the bankers to come introduce them to IPOs, well, those fidelities and capitals got a lot smarter, and now they're investing in the Series C and D, and in some cases even earlier. And, and so the, the, the wolves have figured out how to get some of that good, good alpha that's happening behind the firewall, the IPO firewall. And, and this like 
kind of romantic uh, memory of the IPO that, hey, you know, the dentist talking to his buddy of like, I bought it from my Merrill broker and, you know, I traded, I flipped it. it is that gone? I mean, is, is, is a lot of that alpha kind of drained already by the time these things public? And that's fine. It's just the world needs to be educated that these are slower growers, more mature companies, don't expect the big pop. Like, how, how are you guys thinking about that on the other side? Because you guys represent both sides of the house, right? In capital markets, you have to represent the investors, and in your, your case, a lot of retail investors. Like, I mean, now if you look at the performance that? of software, software IPOs this year, you could have been that day trader dad you know, in retail and got a 60% return on day one. I mean, that, that's not gone. Um, I think it does drive more the dynamics of crossover investing and more time that you would want to spend with Fidelities and T-Rows and Capitals um, and, and so that they get to know your business. And if markets close, you can do a funding round, a small funding round with them that's seeding you to IPO. So I think we're going to see more and more of that. And um, that's going to make the public market and private market valuations probably closer together at some point um, because there won't be as much scarcity in um, you know, not being owned by the public investors ahead of time. So I think, and this goes into the direct listing topic a bit too, I think at some point that you know, the more that you're allowing your, your uh, secondary market liquidity and doing private rounds of crossovers, the, and you're gonna have more sellers kind of rotating the cap table, the more that you're going to close the gap on the difference between public market and private market valuations. Uh, and I would say, I mean, yeah, your observations are all true about the you know, kind of shifting of value creation between the private and the public markets. Um, and the smart public market folks have figured it out, which is why there's more competition for that series E or F or G. Right. Um, you know, maybe we could predict what letter we'll get to, you know, 10 years from now. But um, so it feels like everything is trending in the direction. There'll be more, more of that will continue. Um, I think the key question is there are people that are, that are worried about it, right? Do you, I mean, you've seen comments from uh, people in Washington about, you know, about access, and you've seen comments about investor protections and disclosure and, the, you know, the retail investor, and we'd like to have more public companies because we think Dunaway is a, is a good thing from a you know, governance and disclosure perspective, but it's, you know, it's also a fairness thing. And so I think that will part, you know, to the extent this continues to expand even further, I think that'll probably, you know, I wouldn't be surprised two years from now to see that as part of you the think we'll see more regulation? I don't know. I, I mean, we all know that there's a lot more thinking about Silicon Valley and, and tech companies and especially big tech companies um, and, you know, how they're structured, how they're controlled, like, that's all, you know, all those things are bouncing around. Where, you know, where uh, political sentiment takes them, I don't know, but it's certainly, you hear that stuff, right? right? Uh, your question is something we hear. Yeah. Scott, don't you think it's partly founder, Silicon Valley founder driven to some extent? You know, this, there's a, um, you know, this era of sort of tech innovation is dominated by founders who are con utterly convinced that their products themselves are good for the world and going public creates, you know, a sort of short-term thinking, um, you know, that they think would maybe do harm than more harm than good in terms of their. Pro I mean, like Brian Chesky wrote his like 21st century letter last year talking about Airbnb wants to be an infinite company. Um, uh, you know, you've heard, you know, maybe similar sentiments from other founders. Um, is it is it to some extent a founder problem? They just don't want to go public. Um, I have two teenage daughters, and, and uh, they roll down in the morning and eat their eggs that are hot, and then they get driven to school, and then they go to their tennis lesson, and then they come home and have a tutor on their homework. And I'm like, dudes, like, 
literally, your life will never be this good. Yeah. Like, and they kind of look at me like, what are you talking about, Dad? I'm like, enjoy it, because your life is going to be so much harder. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if you're living that life, <laughs> I'd, I'd stay in that life as long sure. as possible. Okay. So, <laughs> Eat those good eggs. Right? Uh, I mean, yes, they'll, they'll stay in the comfy confines as long as possible. Are they, are they, do we have these, like, you know, to infinity and beyond things? Eh, you know, sure, to some degree, but... I'd say people are a lot more practical about what they're building these yeah. days. Every once in a while, you come across the founder with a big idea. Um, but no, I, of course, they're going to want to stay private as long as possible. Yeah. Uh, let's spend some time on direct listings, because we have to. Um, OK, so direct listings. Who, uh, let's give it to Lauren. Do you want to sort of give your best 30-second um, explanation of a direct listing for those that are not immersed in the cult of direct listing? Sure. So at a high level, you're listing your shares without raising primary capital. So that basically requires your pre-IPO shareholders, secondary shareholders to show up on the day of listing and sell their shares to the public markets. And so that's different from an IPO because in an IPO, you are issuing shares that are predetermined, that are mostly coming from the company, and you're marketing those and placing those investors, and you're choosing the investors, you're allocating to them, and they, those shares are the only shares that can trade on day one. So with a direct listing, the volume on day one is unlimited. Basically, 100% of your existing shareholders could sell on day one. And so when you're um, allocating to investors, you're not allocating to investors. Investors can just show up and see what volume and liquidity there is and decide to buy if they want to buy. So the punchline for a company is that you are kind of seeding control over how many shares is be are being sold on day one and who is buying those. So you have to be comfortable that you don't need any primary capital because you're not supplying that. Um, so that's, those are the two main things. You don't know how many shares are going to be sold and who's going to buy them, and then you're not raising primary capital. So those are the two kind of major differences from IPO. And we've seen two examples of this so far, Spotify and Slack. Um, and, right, like just, just two? Or is there, okay. Um, uh, and, you know, they mostly, I, I feel like the, the coverage around them, you talk to, uh, you know, sort of Slack and Spotify, and they're generally pleased with the process and like you've seen reports of Airbnb strongly considering a direct listing and other, you know, I think um, other folks have said they expect there to be, you know, several direct listings in, in uh, 2020. Um, uh, what is the, I'd be curious to know, like, what is the bar for success? Why are we hearing positive uh, sort of feedback on these things and um, that I guess will generate there being more? And then what are the risks to watch in the near-term future in terms of where could the picture get a little less rosy? You know, what are the risks? Um, I'd be curious to hear from, from either of you two. Well, look, they, I mean, they were both successful, right? They were, well, what is success, I guess? Well, that's, and that's the, I think so that's the great question, which and the, the answer is they were successful because they achieved their objectives. And by the way, Spotify and Slack's objectives weren't exactly the same, right? right? And so, um, you know, Spotify had five objectives. Slack probably had a... But, you know, had what, a different set. What, of what were those differences? Can you well, the, yeah, look, the difference is, you know, Spotify traded a lot privately already. They had a view that they didn't want to restrict people's activity. They didn't want to raise capital they didn't need, right? They wanted to be op very transparent, give everybody the same information. They didn't want to give differential uh, information, and they didn't want to go through a process that was the process that people had gone through for, you know, 20, 50, you know, however many years because they didn't think it was necessary. They had a big company that people understood. They already had public investors. 
They felt that was an unnecessary inefficiency if they were for, if they were forced to go down that path. And so Barry wanted to find another way. You know, I think from Slack's perspective, um, you know, I think their primary objectives were we don't need capital, so we don't want to dilute ourselves. Our shareholders are telling us they don't want to sell on an IPO, and so we don't want to raise the capital just to put the shares out there uh, to go public. We want to get to a normal trading environment sooner rather than later, and we want to give our stakeholders and employees flexibility. And so across those various sets of objectives, um, each, of those, each of those direct listings have been 100% successful. Um, now, they were different, right? And so uh, how were they different? Um, you know, Spotify was the first and new, and so Slack actually traded and opened on multiple times the volume that, um, that Spotify did because people got more comfortable with the process, more investors participated. Um, some investors that said, I'm not comfortable participating in Spotify because this process participated uh, in Slack. Slack, um, you know, had an employee tax uh, situation where all their RSUs were going to be, uh, you know, create a tax obligation. We were able to find a way to structure and pull that forward so those employees could satisfy their tax obligation on the opening trade or over the course of the first day as opposed to the company settling that withholding off of its you know, balance sheet. So those were new developments, new changes that didn't exist in Spotify. And the next ones will change too. That's what I think the biggest thing about the future of the IPO, the future of the public markets, there won't be one or two right. or three solutions. I think you're, what we're coming to, this is the catching up Scott mentioned too. Um, it's not a black box anymore. There's so much more information. There's so much more data. There's just a way to customize around people's objectives in a way that they're, that people weren't doing before. What were you like scared of? What was the worst case scenario with these things, like shareholder lawsuits? Like what, what's like the, what was the disaster bucket of like, okay, now the story would be, eh, maybe we shouldn't um, do this whole direct listing thing. I think for Slack, the biggest fear was no liquidity showing up on day one. Because people they had, not buying, not money. Well, not selling, because they had three shareholders that owned 42% of the company. And so if they didn't participate in selling on day one, there's the RSU piece that, that Will mentioned, but if no one showed up, then you'd have an inefficient, volatile open. And so that wouldn't achieve the, achieve the objective of liquidity and getting to, um, you kind of, uh, recycle the, the cap table to get into public shareholder hands. So I think that was for Slack, and again, it differs for every company, um, what would make it not achieve their, achieve, achieve their objectives, and in that case would have been lack of sellers. But uh, I think the valuation Scott. environment has been very, was right. in their favor. You know, they basically listed at the peak multiples of software valuations, and so there were a lot, of, a lot more sellers. I think that also contributed right. to the day, day one volume. Scott, were you in that seller camp? Was I a seller? Yeah, aren't you in Slack? Like, were you, like, what's the? Uh, what, what's the I'm what's not going to comment on, on what we what we did specifically. We believe in Slack long term. We think it's a really interesting company. But yeah, you can get some liquidity. Like, you know, I sure. Um, actually, I will comment. We didn't sell. Okay. Um, so there you have it. Uh, <laughs> we're a very small, very small yeah, yeah, investor. Yeah. But we were long term focused, and we're backers of founders and visions. And just because the market trades a certain way either because of technical reasons or systemic reasons with the market, eh, you wait it out. Um, but one thing I do want to say uh, about the whole direct listing thing, I love it. I think it's awesome. Um, I also love the regular way IPO. And I love the 50 shades of gray in between. Like, I, I love a private placement with a direct listing. Um, I love the idea of a SPAC. If it, it's all 
situation specific. So if you're a well-known company, there's this concept in, in equity capital markets called a WIXI. Do they still call it that? Still call it. Well-known season issuer, which means you've like printed a bunch of paper in your, as a public company. And guess what? Your rules are, are the, the bar's lower. You can do more things that new issuers can't. Well, take that concept to companies. If you're a well-known company and you've got a robust secondary market where people have been trading in and out and you've got sophisticated investors, well, yeah, just do a direct listing. And if you need to raise capital, go ahead and have Fidelity and Capital or somebody, Capital Group, put in some money as a private placement in front of the direct listing well, and have like them lock themselves up. To, like, get, to get companies to do something new and like thus inherently a little riskier, like the public messaging around why companies are doing direct listings has been uh, you know, fairly uh, conflict-oriented in that uh, VCs have been kind of you know, sort of trumpeting this, this notion that, listen, we want to do these direct listings because uh, essentially we're not capturing all the value of our investments and founders aren't either. A lot of that's going to the banks or they're, they're going to hedge funds and, or they're accruing to the banks so they can satisfy the hedge funds so the hedge yeah. funds will buy in future IPOs. Like, is that, um, is that just sort of uh, a market? Is that just, where's the reality versus the marketing or the politics of that debate? Um, I've sat on both sides of this, right? And I've seen on both sides. There's two places that, that are kind of sinks uh, dilution, if you will, from an equity holder. One is the fee, the spread that a bank charges. What, what are spreads now on IPOs? Like rough range. Depends on the size. You know, 100 to 7%. Five to 7%. So 5 to 7% dilution is a lot of dilution, right? And, and you're looking at these numbers carefully. We, we obsess over cap tables and we look at, okay, this investor's coming in, we get diluted by this, do we do our pro rata? And then all of a sudden there's five to 7% dilution. Okay, so that's a lot of dilution. What are we getting, in, what are we getting for that? On the uh, capital. You want to talk to? Yeah, no, no, you know, I mean, just, yeah, they're, they're linked to my brain to cut, cut off the Okay, <laughs> just let me know and I'll shut up. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then the second thing is a point you mentioned of like, oh, do the banks curry favor to their, because these guys sit on both sides, right? They have to make friends with the issuers and they have to make friends with the buyers of the stock. The bankers just make friends with the issuers and then the trade, uh, not traders, I guess, who sits? With, sales and trading. The yeah. sales and trading. The sales guys are just on the other side. They have to feed both hands. So they're in this like cool spot where they have to make everyone happy. And so, yeah, of course the hedge fund wants to buy low and sell high, right? Well, I think just on this point, we have this app now, and every issuer who's doing an IPO can see exactly who's coming in and placing orders and what the limit is. And I can't think of one IPO where we have dictated from the uh, underwriter side who should be. Who gets it. Yeah. I mean, every CEO, CFO is like, I want this one to be my number one, this one to be number two, this one to be number is three, if they have choice. Now, the other thing is that once you're a publicly traded company, anyone can buy and sell your stock. And so there are hedge funds within mutual funds, and then there are... Um, hedge funds that actually just trade stocks generally, but you can't control that after you actually allocate your stock. So for all the choice that you have in the matter, which CEOs and CFOs use, from that moment on, there is no choice, but except for executing and um, earning the long-term shareholders. Lauren, so, is there data to show what these investors actually do in previous IPOs? Is that 100% transparent? Mm -hmm. Yes, but they only report once a quarter. So you really have no idea except for four snapshots in a year. Of what Our clients get that information. And the clients yeah, get clients to see it. So they see who's flipping, they mm -hmm. see, yeah. yeah. So and actually, in answer your question about like the cost of, of an IPO, I think it's overblown. Okay. I, I think the banks earn their fees. And, and if you're not a well-known issuer, 
like no one's ever heard of your company, you better be hiring one of these two firms or both of them to go tell everyone about you and educate the world about you. If you're Airbnb, eh, but you know what? They're not getting five to 7% on Airbnb. They're losing money on the Airbnb IPO. They will, because yeah. it's really expensive and their fee will be driven so, the spread will be driven so far down, but they get to put it on the lead table and say, look at us, you know, we, we printed Airbnb's IPO. Right, yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but Corey, I, I mean, I think the just before before the uh, just I'm going to open it up to questions right after Will says what he was about to say. So, so think. Yeah, I would just I mean I think the end result here is hopefully we can help people achieve with it. Like we don't all go to the same restaurant, we don't all drive the same car, you know, we don't go to the same place on vacation. You know, you have a set of things you're trying to solve when you're doing something, and hopefully you can find people that can help you solve that uh, effectively. The two direct listings have done that extremely well. Um, we still made a fee for our services, and so we're happy to, you know, we're happy to serve our clients, you know, clients' interests. And I think that the reality is, you know, like there's not a, I don't seek to underprice, you know, our clients' IPOs. Right. I don't seek to overprice them. We speak, we seek to like get what they, you know, want. I think if you look, you know, at this year, right, you know, just as kind of like one, you know, point in time, there've been 25 IPOs. 15 of them are above their IPO price. 10 are below. Uh, on average, they're up six percent. Um, and so I think you can see, and by the way, one of the good things about this direct listing dialogue is it's made everybody have a lot more rigor and think about what is the definition of success, to your point, for each individual company. And I think the more we can break free of the historical pattern of the more an IPO, the, you know, that the more an IPO goes up, the more, you know, there's 10 headlines that say that that was a Uber, you know, that was a great success. Like, that's a good outcome because it's not necessarily a success. It, it got so simplified that I think it was, you know, misleading. And so the reality is, um, the market should be efficient. We should try to help our companies navigate it efficiently, and that's what we're trying to do. Solution is more more panels. Um, <laughs> uh, who has questions? Uh, yeah. Wait for the mic. Those are good stats, by the way. Fifteen up, ten down. And then you guys are. That's great. Uh, secondary markets have been mentioned a few times. Have you seen a significant effect on IPOs, and where do you see that going? I think it's delayed companies from going public. So when you look at the volume of IPOs, they have uh, diminished. And I think a lot of that is because of the private, private markets. And the other thing that's happened, which we didn't discuss, but it's part of the dynamics of IPO, is that the size of IPOs have gotten smaller and smaller as companies have waited a lot longer to go public. And that's because of the secondary markets. And when you're only floating 8% or 9% of your company, and it's a very high in demand company, these price prices go up a lot in the day one and beyond. So I think the secondary markets are contributing to that because companies going public later don't need to raise as much capital, smaller IPOs, bigger trade-ups in day one. I think one area we're seeing our companies and clients spend a lot more time focused is on how do we, um, how do we handle employee liquidity, right? Either in the private context through doing tenders associated with capital raises or something, you know, or something else. And that's become, I think, a much more strategic Flashpoint or decision point for companies as they're staying private longer, they have to figure that out. Um, and um, you know, people, employees are looking at, well, this company did this or that company did this, and so that's become a lot bigger part of the dialogue with companies staying privately longer. Is how do we, you know, balance the needs of employee liquidity while still wanting to use equity as a retention tool? Um, and so that's been an interesting development that didn't exist in the same way, you know, five or ten years ago. All right, one more question because I'm standing between you and lunch. Uh, back there. 
Thank you. Hi, I, uh, I'm Paul. I invest in both public and private markets. Love for you to explore the root causes of this disconnect between private and public a little bit more. Howard Marks of Oak Tree wrote in his memo that the low interest environment has pushed some of the investors to chase after higher yields, which in a low interest environment that necessarily means riskier assets. Um, love for you to explore that more, and, and you know, if interest rate goes up. How would that disconnect between private and public play out? Thanks. So, yes, um, I think that I think the interest rates are having an impact. People have pushed out on the risk spectrum to try to seek returns. I think what Scott mentioned in terms of companies waiting longer, therefore not being able to see the same value creation in public market stocks, they figured we need to go privately to get it. And the other thing that we've then um, to get into companies earlier, and then the other thing that we've seen is. If, a, if an investor can invest privately, one that didn't traditionally invest a lot privately, if they can invest privately, they may be able to put a lot more capital to work at a single point in time than they can publicly where it might be harder to buy, uh, might be harder to obtain or buy that position. So let, let me give you a simple example. If a mutual fund invests in a Series E uh, in, a, you know, in a software company, they may be able to put 50 or $100 million um, you know, to work. If, if that company then subsequently goes public uh, the next year and raises you know three hundred million dollars. The largest mutual fund investor that gets allocated probably uh, is getting twenty million dollars. So they're willing to pay more for they're willing to pay more to get fifty or hundred million dollars to work uh, than they are for the ability to get you know uh, the ability to get twenty five million dollars to work at that at that price and then have to go chase or source you know the other liquidity to get a more meaningful investment uh, later. So I think there's a handful of different things that are impacting. Um, the divide, you know, and then the last thing is, you know, it's just the valuation as viewed by a smaller handful of people than a market at a hold where there's liquidity on both the ability to buy the stock and there's liquidity uh, with the ability to sell the stock. And we've seen that in a lot of the, the IPOs this year. Uh, we're going to break for lunch. Give a round of applause for our panelists. <laughs>